Episode 12 of the podcast is with Tim Lees. Tim has coached at numerous clubs, including Liverpool, Watford and St. Louis over in the US. It was great to have Tim on. Uh, When we first set the podcast up and in episode one, I said that I wanted numerous practitioners on the podcast, not just S&C and sports science. And Tim is our go-to guy in terms of anything technical or tactical. Um, He's absolutely quality with the work that he does. So it was great to have him on. He speaks on the podcast about what qualities he looks for when hiring an S&C or sports scientist, as well as the stats that he prioritizes and why. Please subscribe and share the show. If you haven't uh, done so already, head over to iTunes and leave us a review and that'll enter you into our competition and uh, that'll give you a chance of winning Damien Hughes' latest book, The Barcelona Way. Here's the episode with Tim. Welcome to episode 12 of the Football Fitness Federation podcast. Today we're joined by another good friend of Football Fitness Federation, Tim Lees, who is a coach who's worked across numerous clubs and numerous countries as well. Um, including Watford, Wigan, Liverpool, and many more. Tim, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, Ben. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, mate. I'm really good. Thanks for giving up your Sunday and uh, a portion of your Sunday and speaking to me. I know you could be doing a lot of other better things right now, including eating a roast dinner. So uh, yeah. I appreciate your time, mate. No problem. No problem at all. Just for anyone that's um, not seen the work that you do, Tim, just fill them in on your background and your experience. Yeah, so very briefly, I started off kind of working, um, started coaching at 16 after I'd been released from pro clubs and then kind of didn't really know what direction I was going to go in. Um, Started off kind of voluntary, just doing sports clubs, after school clubs, holiday camps, progressed on to doing uh, obviously different badges and um, different soccer schools in the summer and residentials and things like that. When I was at university in London, wrote to every club in the country to get... um, just to come out and put cones out for anyone really and I was quite lucky in that there was only one club that got back to me out of every single one and it was Watford and ironically in terms of what they were doing at the time it was probably the best setup I could be in in the country being honest because they were the kind of catalyst for the the first category one model if you like because they were the first one in England to have an actual school-based system where the kids come to school during the day they train during the day before school during the day etc um, so in terms of the contact hours and the people that I was involved in there, they were absolutely outstanding. So um worked at Watford for a couple of years, moved back up north where I'm originally from to back to Wigan, uh, worked at Wigan for four years, moved on to Liverpool and most recently was in uh, academy manager in a big club in, in America called St. Louis. Awesome. Now we, me and Alan often uh, refer to you as our go-to guy for anything in terms of technical or tactical work. And I know, um, We've spoken to you about numerous things in the past, but what are the important qualities that you look for in an S&C coach? Because the whole reason we set this podcast up was to get different practitioners on and to speak about different points of view. And that's one reason, obviously, why I wanted you on. So um, what are the important qualities you look for? In an S&C coach? Yeah, S&C or sports science. I think, first of all, there's, there's not, in terms of, the first thing I'd look for and have done previously in, when bringing staff in uh, is the personal qualities of any staff member. So whether that be S&C, analyst, sports psychologist, whoever it is, or a coach, it doesn't matter. I think the set kind of criteria of personal qualities that any kind of club I've been part of and me personally will be looking for in a person. So you could brand it as professionalism, but within professionalism, it, 
I think everyone would say, oh, well, yeah, I understand professionalism, but there's, there's key things for me kind of in, in the last few years that I've really learned through working with people who um, who don't have these qualities really and they become problematic in kind of a workplace. So I think for me, in terms of the personal side, it's the humility, it's the having a, the right personality, not being a yes man's really important, and then just having the trust and the loyalty and, and kind of the commitment from the individual. I think away from those general qualities in terms of, in terms of employing a specific sports scientist or S&C coach, I think we, we, we certainly looked at it just off the top of my head. There was five different criteria that we looked at in, in America when we were bringing someone in. And it was based on five separate things that was just our point of view. But um, the first one was, was in terms of the time. So, and you'll be able to relate to this to when we're at Wigan a lot. Um, so do they understand football's kind of the priority really? And they their job is to bolt alongside of it and can they be creative? For example, um, so we, we, in fact, I'll give you another one. So can they be creative? So if I look at example, when I was at Liverpool, that was completely different setup in terms of incorporating strength and conditioning and it was at a different club. So, right, it, you're always kind of battling against the clock. An S&C coach always wants more time. The analysts want more time. The sports psychologist does. The coach does. Everybody wants more time. The goalkeeper coach wants more time than he's got with his with his keepers so it's always a battle against the clock and I think it's trying to find that balance of getting what everybody needs and giving the players the best things for them individually and collectively but kind of being creative with it really so for example um, it may be right we've only got an hour session today because the game's in two days so in terms of fitting whatever the relevant S&C stuff is for today it might be that during the warm-up we're going to do a 15-minute ball manipulation warm-up it's going to be quite low intensity so can we mix in, say we do two minutes of ball work, after each two minutes during that rest period, can the S&C coach then work on specific, whether it be flexibility, stretching, core stability, whatever it may be. So whereas it might be right, when we were at Wigan, for example, you'd have an arrival activity with the kids because we were very restricted in terms of the turnover of kids coming in and different age groups and the facilities we had available. Um so I think for me, the most important thing is can they adjust to whatever time period we've got available, which is different every single club and every age group. Second thing, can they adapt to the facilities? So as you know, as well as me, <laughs> sometimes the facilities are not always exactly what you want in terms of the equipment, the space you have available, um, the gym space, etc. So can they adjust to whatever facilities they have at their disposable? Um, third thing, can they evolve? So in terms of, and we've spoke about this a lot before, society at the minute and it really changing in terms of that play element and kids climbing and being in trees and fighting on the street, etc. So can they evolve with the demands of what, I say kids, I'm going to keep going back to kids because my experience in the academy, but what players need these days. Um, so third one's about evolving. Fourth one was about, and we've spoke about this again, it's it's not I don't know how to phrase it it's it's not being kind of gimmicky so work with a lot of people who they'll see something online and that's the new kind of gimmick that they want to bring in um, and for me it's about can they make it functional can they make it specific for each athlete and can they recognise that rather than going I've seen this new thing online I'm going to do this with everyone so do they have the experience to be able to recognise what is and what isn't efficient in terms of what they're doing with the athlete and then the last thing is just the same for every coach really but it's re i think this is the most important one can they make it personalized and again 
you're battling against the clock, you're battling against the time. But we've spoke about this before, looking at boxing, athletics. These these different sports have individual specific coaches for that. Well, for the specificity, really. So can the S&C coach understand what each individual needs? And more importantly, can they give it to them? So I think they're the kind of main five elements that we would look for in, in coaches. Certainly I've done previously, but the most important ones are obviously the personal qualities because you have to be able to work with the people every day. Yeah. And do you know what, Ben? I think, as we've said a lot before, a lot of people come in with a load of knowledge and then they don't have the humility, um, they don't have the ability to adjust, they're not committed enough, they're not trustworthy enough, um, they'll be backstabbing, they'll go and be doing their own thing. So I think them personal qualities it's really, are really, really important as well. And, and you've touched on this a little bit already because um, I know you're a massive sort of advocate of like a cohesive coaching model and that coaches working together and it not being a separate S&C session to a, to a football session that can all work within the same and you touched on it a little bit there in terms of warm-ups that it doesn't have to be separate sessions you don't have to go and do a mobility session and then follow it with your, with your technical session you can actually blend it in together and um, yeah. I think one thing when obviously we were working together a big thing was um, the fact that it, a lot of the information came from you who was who was um, the head coach at the time? That was really important for the players, and their and their buy-in was a lot better when it came from you in that session. Even though it was the same information coming from S and C Sports Science staff, it was important about who it came from as well. So that that ease of coaching and the and the fact you can get your team together is uh, really important, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And I think from the players' point of view as well, they the coaches have a big part to play in terms of the S&C coaches because I, I think that as a player, you buy into an S&C coach more if you think, they, and they don't have to know the details of a tactical system or the way we're setting up at the weekend, but if they have knowledge of this is how the team wants to play, this is the style, these are the principles that they look for, they don't have to be an A-licensed, incredible tactical coach, but if they have knowledge of... Um, them individuals and the club etc I just think that carries a lot of weight as well but like you say it doesn't have to be it, I think if it's if it's it, we had to incorporate everything in terms of Wigan because of the time we had available but say you've got a day release program where the kids coming in at nine in the morning you've got all day I think obviously that's different then and you've got a huge gym where right it's relaxed it's chilled we're getting food at this time but apart from that we can run the morning the afternoon however we want that's different but Obviously, most clubs I've been at don't have the luxury of of that. So you have to the S and C coach has to incorporate, and the coach has to incorporate everything together, really. And a big part of it is being flexible in the program as well, isn't it? Because like like you said again before, when coaches have their views, and I'm I'm thinking about more S and C um, side now, when they have their views about what they want to do, and they have to get this, and they have to get that in. But then the program needs to be flexible enough that yeah, football is the main thing that the, the the players need to be doing. So if it does, if that doesn't fit in with the actual plan for the day or the plan for the evening or whatever, they need to, they they have to have a flexible approach to it too and fit into what the coach wants. Yeah, I think that's a really important word. I think in terms of if you look at the modern coaching environment, in terms of with E Triple P coming in, everything is everything's recorded, everything's periodized and planned to the minute. Um, everything is controlled and that's a big thing that I believe in these days especially going over to America as well is that um, 
in England, there's not a lot of, I say there's not a lot. Flexibility is really, really important. And now because everything's, um, everyone is held accountable for certain things and you've got to do individual reports for every player after every single session and six weeks and this is what we're doing this session and age group coaches have to dictate to part-time staff, right, I need to know next February at 6.30 exactly what session you're doing now and this kind of dictatorship is doesn't leave a lot of flexibility and certainly I'm huge on the flexibility side from a coaching point of view, from an S&C from an analysis and from a player's point of view, I think it's really, really important. And um, there is a bit of a danger, which I know we'll probably come on to later, of it becoming quite robotic. And um, yeah, that flexibility is massive for me. So just to move it on, when I was chatting with Al about the things we could go through, um, I think one of the most important things from our point of view is to get your views on what you see as being the most important physical attributes that, that, probably separate the average from the elite so who what do you see in a player and I know that every player is a little bit different but what would you look at in a player from your point of view and think that that physical quality sort of lifts them above the rest in terms of kind of them getting through a system or from separating like good to elite or um I think separating good to elite because I, I you could probably talk about like the difference between whether it's grassroots and professional or whether it's going through age groups in, a, in an academy system. But I think from, from your knowledge and your experience, what do you see as being really key physically mainly um, that separate the good from the great or the good from the elite? Yeah, it's a massive question. We could talk a, a long time on it. So for me, I think I'll start off by saying uh, foundation and youth development, and this is just my opinion, you don't know how they're going to turn out physically. You don't know how they're going to mature in terms of players. So it's not an area for me that people should be gambling on because it is a gamble. It's, it's, it's a guessing game. So for me, remove the guess out and focus on the certainties. So for example, if, if you're, looking at, you're looking at players off the top of my head, Harry Kane, bottom of the under-15s, bottom of every single physical test at the club. So explosive power, acceleration, sprinting, change of direction, bottom on every single score. So in terms of the physical side, he could have been released at that point. And this is what the academy manager at Spurs has said on numerous conferences that I've been on. He could have been released based on physical criteria. Now, you look what he's achieving now, and it's absolutely incredible. If you think that at 15, he could have been released. You look at Messi, played down age groups. Jesse Lingard at the minute played down age groups. And something that I know we've, we've spoke about before in terms of, because I'm a big fan of the boxing, I know you are as well. I always kind of say this to different people. I've been part of different academies that would release kids based purely on, uh, or not not release kids, but a big part of the conversation in terms of predicting them in the future would be, ah, well, look at his brother's size, look at mum and dad's height. Now, Mm. you look at the Smith brothers in boxing from Liverpool, for example, four different brothers, Callum Smith, what is he, super middleweight, six foot three, six foot four, probably walks round about, I don't know, super middle, 14 stone, 14 and a half stone. He's got a brother, Stephen, who's five foot six, probably walks around at nine stone. And that's just in one family of elite athletes. So for me, it's very, very dangerous to look at siblings or mum and dad. And that these are conversations that are going on in a lot of pro clubs. Um, I see a lot of lads now that are, that are young men that 
whether it's I'm out shopping or that I go watching different games and lower levels and they were released from clubs I've been at due to physical size and I'm looking at them now and they're, they're six foot three athletes quick strong and decisions were made on these kids at 12 and yeah. for me there's so many kind of players who were who were playing non-league that have been given up on due to pure with kind of the physical side I mean look at one for that, that you've dealt with Sniffer for example Luke Burgess technically outstanding we played him up I uh, played him up at two age groups because his age group was too easy for him in terms of the technical and, and the tactical side really clever player staff used to question oh, well, why are you playing him up two age groups because because it's too easy for him at his age group in terms of the, the technical side so he needs to be challenged in terms of his thinking in terms of getting his body in the way how does he deal with people now that are quicker there how does he get it? so this 1v1 work you'd have kind of Premier League players who come down in sessions and say this kid's technically better than I am now but the, the problem if he was in different academies he'd be released purely due to his size so um, I think a lot of ego gets in the way a lot of people people are under pressure to make certain decisions um, so kind of just to round that up for me it's uh I've kind of gone around the houses with it, but at younger ages, it's just a guessing game. Now, with that said, when you're putting it under the microscope in terms of elite players now, you can't play at elite, elite, world-class Premier League level unless you're physically meeting the requirements of kind of the exam, if you like. So for me, there's if you don't have a baseline requirement in terms of a change of direction, agility, acceleration, then regardless of how kind of elite you're, technical or tactical qualities are unfortunately at that level you, you are going to get exposed so it, it comes back to that phrase I kind of use a lot on with different teams and things make sure your strengths get you in the team and make sure your weaknesses don't get you out of it um, yeah. so for me there's kind of certain there's certain positions that require higher physical qualities so for example you don't see centre-backs that are five foot four so the, the kind of physical side is important but it's not about strength and size for me it's about agility nimbleness change of direction core strength acceleration I mean you look at someone like Coutinho came down to Liverpool's academy once when we were doing sessions it's absolutely nothing to him he's absolutely tiny but in terms of the, the qualities just listed there he's absolutely elite at it so for me I think I prefer to look at the player's physical profile and then tailor the individual plan based around that profile. So, for example, if you look at Xavi, Iniesta, they're unbelievable in terms of twisting and turning, and getting the body in the way 1v1. And that'll be because they had to find a solution when they were younger because they were the smallest players in the squad. So they had to find the solution to stay on the ball through their lack of physical strength and size, if you like. You can then go the other way and look at someone like uh, Lukaku, who... Is is kind of is his main role as an identity. His main role as a as a player should be right. I know him all since he was a kid. He's going to be a central target player. He's always or very likely most of the time going to be playing one v two against two centre backs. So his kind of characteristics should be right. As soon as the ball comes up to me, I'm unbelievable at holding the ball up, at setting, at getting on the end of crosses. And you kind of look at his characteristics, and he doesn't hold the ball that well. Defenders nick in front all the time. So for me, it goes back to, right, what's the kind of physical qualities of the player? Don't guess on it too early, but whatever the physical kind of qualities they've got, the coaches and the S&C should then be building the individual plans around, around that, that kind of profile. Does that, does that make sense? Um, 
Definitely, and I think you read my mind on part of that because when you were talking, I was, I was thinking about things like the individual approach and also the, the strength and size. And this, I think this is really old school in football as well, isn't it? That you pick the big kids and they're the ones that are the most explosive and powerful and stuff. But, I mean, we've worked with loads of players that are, that are big for their age and, and supposedly strong, but just because they're big doesn't make them strong. And also the reverse of that, these smaller players that are technically and tactically like right up there in the age groups or in the teams or whatever, if you were to test size and strength, like the relative size and strength for their actual um, physical makeup, they'd be right up there. So you have to understand, and this is one thing that I know that you are really good at and a lot of coaches need to sort of learn from your approach is that you've got to understand what you're talking about when you're speaking about things like being strong and, and being explosive and being fast. Like It doesn't always come down to the size of the player. We, I think we, all, we refer straight away to having like a, an NFL player in our head or a sprinter in our head. Like They're not the sort of body types that we're working with in football. And like you say with Coutinho, like, you can't argue that he's not got a good strength level because for him to play the level he's played at and play against some of these big powerful players like he has to he has to have a, a decent strength level to cope against those players yeah 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 I think it comes from a bigger problem really though which is that the pressure asked from academy manager the pressure has, has to be taken off everybody involved in that youth youth setup for results as soon as you take the pressure off for results as soon as it becomes part of your everyday behaviour of not asking score lines, not saying, right, but how did we get on? As soon as you start focusing on, did we have the best players on the pitch? What were the best players like? Were the best players getting better? As soon as you focus on the individual side or the technical, tactical qualities of the collective or the group, the conversations then start shifting and people feel less under pressure to get results. And when the, when the big pressure's on results, how did you get on this weekend? What score was it this weekend? Brilliant, praising results. When trialists come in then, the coach, has, the coach, listen, it's wrong and they shouldn't do it, but the coach tries to protect themselves so they go, right, can I get big physical players in here because if I do put this kid in and he gets caught on the ball and they go through and they score, this makes me look bad. So it's taking that ego out of the situation and that comes right from the academy manager at the top. That, that is how the academy is led. Once that pressure on results is relieved, it becomes more about development everybody then is focusing more on, right, what's this kid going to look like at 18, 19, 20 when he needs to make his debut rather than now? But there's too much pressure on results, competing, can we be better than this club? And, and that's the issue with it all. Yeah. And then just on that, um, what areas do you think that play, like young players in particular are neglecting or not being exposed to enough? Um, so whether that is just within the work that you do or whether you look at it and think more of a, an S&C approach, like where, where do you think they need more work? Yeah, I think, it, I think it's different on different clubs. I think every club has their own issues. Every academy has their issues and no matter where you go to, you think you go to a top Cat 1 club and they're not going to have problems that you had when you was at Cat 3, but everybody's got their own problems. Um, I think in general, there is a big problem in terms of what we've spoke about a lot, the society changes now. So this play element of um, these, what we said before about the, the sessions and the programmes are too much based around the coach and their ego and the kids lose out on this play side and the enjoyment. And there's a lot of kind of mini Guardiolas out there now thinking their answer is the right answer with 
a lot of complex terminology and it's it's based on the coach rather than the individual so um i think that's the first thing the second thing is the individual development so i still think there's a big miss on the identity work for players what type of player is he what players are going to be what's his elite quality going to be what specific practices we're setting up every single session for him are the centre forwards going through sessions, not finishing the ball 100 times? Are the centre midfielders working on range of pass? Are the, are the full-backs working on 1v1 defending? No matter what it is, are there specific practices? Or if you can't do those practices isolated, and this is the big thing I learned at Liverpool and I haven't seen it anywhere else, are coaches designing team sessions based around individuals? So are you running collective um, drills and exercises that really are based around individual with the collective still getting the returns that they need. Um, I think the third thing is what, again, my big thing on this 1v1 work. So the ability to, the, the kind of way the game's going now in terms of it's coming a lot more defensive, a lot more structured, teams are blocking the field really quickly. It's becoming a lot more defensive and it's just creating players who can play in that jungle. So this this 1v1 work, this receiving under pressure, this twisting and turning ability where players have to receive in that jungle and, and get out of trouble and find solutions when there's nothing else on for them. Um, I think this 1v1 side is really, really important. And then the last thing on that is kind of, there is an absolute obsession for the last seven, eight, nine, ten years with, and I don't know how you found this, we've not spoke about this before, with, with playing in and training in tight spaces, so making the spaces as small as possible so that coaches reduce the thinking time, so that the ball's flying at 100 miles an hour, it's all one and two touch, but the problem with that is it starts creating robots. It start you're playing in, back into pressure all the time, rather than drawing people out and delaying it and having the ability to recognise when to speed up and when to slow down tempo. With the tight spaces, then you're not having players who run off people and running running behind. So I think there's kind of I know I've put that into four different categories, but um, they're the kind of areas that I feel as if young players are generally and not getting exposed to these days. Yeah. That's awesome information, that, mate. That's class. Um, so, again, when myself and Alan sat down, we were talking about having you on the podcast, we were trying to decide about what areas we could get you to talk about, because we know that you bring loads of information to it, but we wanted to sort of get your point of view on those different things. So, one of them was how, and this is probably looking more towards your time at Liverpool, I'm guessing, but, how would you or would you have interpreted game stats? So things that SSD coaches, and this is one thing we spoke about a lot with on the podcast, is how we give information to coaches. And it's one thing that I think SNC and sports science coaches have done quite poorly in the past is that they've just flooded information into the technical coaches or whoever it is. And it doesn't actually whether it doesn't make sense or it's just too complicated and it, and it isn't in it isn't provided in a way that it can actually have a good effect on the practice. Yeah. So what's your, what's your um, experience on that and um, how how has it informed your practice and, and potentially the game model as well? Yeah, I think the, the priority is the, the kind of first port of call for any academy is, is to decide the game model what everyone is working towards every day. So kind of, as Pep Linders used to say at Liverpool, the lighthouse that guides the whole academy. So in terms of once you've decided the game model, the stats then that you look at, whatever they are, 
are directly influenced by the game model. So, for example, if my if my game model is counter-attacking, um, let me think. So, I'd be looking at stats on the number of times we've played through through the middle of the park, so the number of times we've played through centrally, um, the number of regains we get and kind of the areas of the pitch where we are regaining them. Um, I don't know, the number of regains that ended with a shot on goal or a shot anywhere. The The kind of things that you wouldn't measure and that have kind of no significance would be possession stats, individual efficiency, because it's based on counter-attacking. So for me, I have my own stats kind of model that I work towards, which is is based purely on the game model that I work towards. Um, so if I go back to what I worked on most recently in America, the, the game model influences the stats. The stats are influenced and influence the messages before the game, training, half-time, full-time. It all relates to the same thing. So... I split it from collective one half, individual one half. Collective side would be based around the style that I want to each age group to have. When I say style, style, there's a lot of variables in it in terms of the system that changes depending on the, the personalities, the identities, the individuals. But in terms of the collective, I kind of split it into four different measurable stats that every time the players came in on a Monday, we'd have someone who'd done all the stats for the weekend and these would be what we'd reflect on. So the first one would be 70% possession. So at 70%, obviously, in terms of the returns you get tactically, in terms of the reps people get, whether it be for their identities, whether it be um, full-backs in high areas, whether it be centre-mids receiving under pressure, kind of at 70%, generally, you're in control of the game. You're getting repetition of what you need. Um, within that, then, all the information that I give back to the players is based around that stat so for example at half time it would be right have we got 70% possession, 70% possession if not how are we going to achieve it is most of our possession in our defensive third is it in the half is it near the halfway line so my information then and the information I get back from the players is based around what they know and what they're working towards which is the 70% possession second thing is uh, number of turnovers so number of times we're in that 70% possession, we give the ball away. And we had a target. We watched Barcelona, all the top teams, less than 150 turnovers in a game. Um, third thing was regain. So can we regain within five passes? And we had that as can we get over 70% of regains within five passes from the opposition when we lose it? And then the last thing was how many times within five passes that we regained it did we give it away? So basically 70% possession, which is are we keeping the ball? are we in the opponent's half? As soon as we lose it, since sorry, when we're on it, less than 150 turnovers, so stay on the ball, basically. That's what that encouraged. As soon as we lose the ball, can we get it back really quickly? As soon as we get it back, make sure we don't give it away because that's when a high number of kind of turnovers were. As soon as we regain it, because we're not in that kind of open, big shape again on the pitch, there's that interim period where we've got to get to three, four, five, six passes and then we have that big shape again and then, and then we're back to 70% possession. So that's, they're the stats I look for in terms of the collective side. The individual side, um, when, when we, you, you probably remember this back in 2012, 2011 at Wigan, it was based, I was basing it on pass completion, um, passing forward completion. And to be honest, I was probably miles away, especially when I look at what kind of I do now. So I have combined the individual side with something that I stole from Liverpool under Pep Linders. So I can't go into it in massive detail, but I've kind of added elements on. And basically it measures individual efficiency of players, which relates to their 
positions and it's playing into certain zones of the pitch. It's very simple to follow. Players understand it. And what you're looking for is players who can affect the game rather than, right, have I got this centre midfielder who has come off the pitch with 95% pass completion. He's made 100 passes, but he's bounced full-backs and centre-backs all day and he's not affected the game at all. So um, it's... I used to pay a couple of staff who'd watch the video back after the game. They'd measure this individual efficiency model for every player. That player on the Monday morning would come in so they'd see their collective stats for the team. So did we achieve them? And by the way, if we achieved those four different stats, we won 95% of the games. Um, so if we, if we focus on what we're actually trying to achieve... I think there was only one game all season that we lost and that was when we played national champions and we had about 50 shots at goal and couldn't score. So they kind of, they, if you take care of that process, the result usually takes care of itself. And then on that individual side, like I said, I was paying people to, or the club were, to watch the video, record it. Lads would come in on a Monday, they'd see their own individual stats. They'd compare that on what they'd got previous games, but also what, either the best person in their position got, i.e. if the left centre-half got more higher efficiency and played into higher zones more frequent than me in the game, why is that? <clears throat> and then they compare it to top pros as well. So for every position, we would have kind of a, um, a target that they had to achieve. So they knew in terms of the frequency and they knew in terms of the efficiency what they had to get every game. And then that would be, it got to the point where the analysts could do that actually live during the game so they could sit high up in the stand and they could get all them stats for us. So at half time then when I'm going in, I'm feeding back, right, we're not at 70%. Why not? This is how we're going to do it. We might have to change the system. Your movements might have to go here in this way. This is how they're playing. But it never comes away from the kind of collective, what we're always working on. Um, and then individual side, I'd feed back to them, right, um, as the winger, you've had six moments this half. You've been isolated 1v1 in different times. You haven't got one cross into the box. Why? What's the problem? How are we going to solve that second half? So I think it's really good to have it done live because this is what I'm saying about the game model and the way you play and the stats. It all has to tie in. It can't be I'm going in one week and it's right, lads, counter-attacking stats this week. Next week, ah, why is your individual efficiency low? And it's like, well, I've no idea what you want from me. Yeah. So, yeah, they're that- the kind of the stats I look at. No, that's top, mate. That, and the the reason behind this question was that you see them all knocking around Twitter, don't you? Like, when, as soon as there's been games on, the, there'll be loads of stats coming out from games. And I think from what you've gone through there, it just proves that you've got you've got rationale behind why. Well, one, first of all, which stats you're looking at and which ones you're interested in, but also the reason why um, in terms yeah. of the game model. Just to um, Shed a bit of light on it. This basically came from the City game last week against Liverpool when there was uh, the stats coming out about Bernardo Silva and the, the distance covered. So I think it was saying that he covered uh, something like 14k in a game, and like there was loads, there was loads of like ranting and raving about it. And I'm not saying I'm not putting it down by any point, uh, like any stretch of the imagination. But the reason behind it is that, and this is why I wanted you to speak on it, is that there has to be a reason behind that doesn't there and it's not just a case of covering ground it that might be one of his individual targets it might have been um the way that they were playing but we can't just look at the stat as it is and not relate it to how the team have played yeah 100 percent. and it's based on it's based on the strategy it's based on the system so um 
Let's have a think. Uh, best example. So if you look at England in the World Cup, they played 3-5-2, but when they lost the ball, it basically became a back five, and then the midfield three together were... They had a front two up top, but then the midfield became three players trying to cover the entire width for the pitch. So if you looked at, I think it was um, Henderson, Deli Alley, Lingard, the stats were absolutely off the chart in terms of ground covered. But, well, yeah, because they're having to slide across the pitch because that system is exposing them so they don't have a choice. Now, by the time they get on the ball, is that actually a good thing that they've covered all that distance? I'm sure they'd have been thinking any chance of the wing-backs trying to press out a bit here and help me, or any chance the one of the strikers dropping in and making a forge, you know what I mean? So, it, like you say, it depends on the game, it depends on the style, and it depends on the system a lot as well. Um, yeah. And that's that's what I knew you'd, you'd uh, relate and uh, be able to talk about a lot more in, in depth than what, what I can certainly talk about. But I think that was just important to get that across and that it's not just a case of taking all this information because we can we can become flooded with it can't we and and that's where yeah. it's important in terms of how we relate it to people too there's so much stuff we can take from a game now we have to we have to instead of to just taking the shotgun approach and just having loads of different information flying at you you need to know what you're looking at and why 100% yeah I, there was a there was a game over Christmas can't remember which one it was and there was a Premier League player a centre midfielder and I was getting really frustrated watching him because he just he was getting it, playing really, really simple all the time. He was playing forward, but he was, play, he was playing as a six, just in front of the back four. And he was playing into the easy pass all the time, bouncing in. He was keeping, maintaining control and maintaining the tempo, but he wasn't impacting the game and it was killing the team. And it was really slowing the game down as well. So it came off and it came up on the stats. I can't remember. It came up past completion and the amount that he had and the commentators were um, praising it. And... I did my nightly kind of trip onto Twitter and everyone was going mad for it. Now I, I was doing something at the time. I was there was a I was doing some consultancy for someone and I was looking at individual stats. So I, I actually measured these efficient the efficiency model that I work off. I, I measured that in the game. And it was absolutely abysmal, his stats. Like it was yeah. it was one of the worst on the pitch. And he was getting praised on it. Now, it just comes down to what you want to measure, doesn't it? So other people could look at me and say, well, that's your stats model and he might be high on yours, but he's not high on ours here, which is pass completion. So I think it depends on education. It depends on what you're looking for. It depends on what you need. And mine's come through making mistakes, really. Mine's come through having pass completion when I first started out and that not being, not producing the type of player that it needed. And then, right, is it forward pass completion? But then you could be playing passes in behind. And so mine's come through making mistakes and, and realising... I think pretty much still in 10 years' time, I'll be working to a very similar model that I'm using now. I don't see it evolving a lot more, but um, yeah, it just stats are, stats are very interesting. You can debate them all day. It, it's like GPS. It, can, it depends how you interpret it, doesn't it? Yeah. And sometimes I think it's better to have um, a limited amount of data like that because you can really focus on the reasons why rather than having absolutely loads and not really knowing what to do with it. Yeah, yeah. No, that's top, mate. Listen, I've, I've kept you for, well, 40 minutes now, so um, I'm not going to take up any more of your time on a Sunday, but 
if any of the guys have got any questions in terms of anything, where's the best place to shout, like to re- reach out to you? Yeah, I'm on Twitter, or um, you can follow my email address onto anyone, no problem. Okay, so I'll put that do out. See, do you see how I've delayed that, though, because I don't even know my Twitter address, I've no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I'll put it in the uh, show notes, I'll have a look and see. No problem, mate. I uh, appreciate your time, mate. Top man. All right. Cheers, Ben. Cheers, Tim. Thanks a lot to Tim for coming on the podcast. He recorded this on a Sunday, so I really appreciate his time. Uh, you can go and follow Tim. He's on Twitter at TimLees10, or lowercase. I think some of the biggest takeaways for me were uh, the, the fact that he looks at the personal qualities when hiring an S&C or sports scientist over um, qualifications over um, like a lot of the stuff in terms of the technical side of the role, the personal side seems to be a lot more important to him. Um, and then also what he looks for in a player. So we spoke about the looking at physical attributes and he was referring to like the, the way of thinking that you need the biggest, strongest players. Um, so it was really great to get his views and opinions on that. And then also his interpretation of stats. So that there's loads of information out there and available to coaches and, and he really has strong views on what he looks for and the reasons why and how it fits in with his game model. And I knew that was something that he'd speak about in the podcast, so it's great to get his views across on that. Uh, if you haven't done so already, go over to iTunes, enter our competition. So to enter the competition, you just got to leave an iTunes review. And that'll give you your chance of winning a signed copy of Damien Hughes' latest book, The Barcelona Way, which is really a, a top book. I spoke about it in the last episode. Um, he speaks about the culture at Barcelona and how it was affected by people like Cruyff and Guardiola. So if you go over to iTunes, leave a review, that'll enter you into the competition. The winner will be drawn on the 23rd of January. And then we've also released our Knots uh, Network Meeting tickets now. So you can head over to our Instagram. Um, the link is in the bio on the Instagram um, and it's available on Eventbrite to put your place uh, onto the meeting. So come and network with other coaches, like-minded coaches. And we've also got Johnny Wilson doing a, a presentation so you can see Johnny present as well. And we've also just added more content onto our community. So if you haven't heard of our com- community, we've got an online Football Fitness Federation community available for coaches and players with loads of information on there and we've just added uh, the presentation from Will Abbott that he did at our Brighton Network meeting so that's now available on the community if you want to look up the community go to our website which is footballfitfed.com and click on the community tab at the top and that'll take you through to the, the right page to get all that information you can also go and follow us on Instagram at footballfitfed and Twitter at footballfitfed I hope you enjoyed the episode with Tim he was Definitely someone I wanted to get on the show to get his views um, from a technical coach um, side and point of view. So I hope you enjoyed all the information that he went into and I'm sure we'll get him on again in the future and we will speak to you next week.